Hey everyone, thanks for tuning in to the Story Blender. This week's episode comes to you from the Story Vault, our collection of past interviews. We're excited to share it with you and we hope you enjoy it. Welcome to the Story Blender. I'm Stephen James, and this is where great storytellers share the secrets of great storytelling. You know, over the years, I've read lots of different books on how to write, and many of them basically give the same information as, as the others. But one day, I stumbled across a book called How to Write Killer Fiction, and it is probably the most helpful book for writing mystery and suspense that I've come across. And so today, I'm thrilled that the author of How to Write Killer Fiction is with us. Um, over the years, Carolyn Wheat has won many awards for her mysteries, including the Anthony, the Agatha, and McCavity Awards. She has received wide critical acclaim for her stories from the New York Times Book Review, Library Journal, Book List, Publishers Weekly, and many others. She's a writing instructor and popular conference speaker, and she shares her unique understanding of mystery and suspense writing, much of which has appeared in her classic book, How to Write Killer Fiction. So, Carolyn, thanks for joining me here today. Well, thank you for that wonderful introduction. I almost didn't recognize myself. (laughs) (laughs) Who is this person? (laughs) I was speaking at one conference, and the person read this really kind introduction, right? And so when I came up there, I said, that's the kindest introduction I've ever written. And everyone laughed. So it's, um, it's, I had heard another speaker do that. And so now whenever someone reads a really nice introduction, I was like, that's the nicest one I've ever written. <laughs> and usually people will be like, uh, they'll, they'll enjoy just that it starts off on a lighthearted note. Well, and it's actually the truth. I mean, in terms of this is what the, the, the beginning writer who has not yet been published doesn't realize is everything in that jacket blurb, everything in your press materials, you're going to end up writing it yourself. You really are. <laughs> That's because true. Because who knows your book better than you? You know, know when the, it comes to describing yeah. what the book is about and really concisely, you know, you don't really want some editor that read it once. You you want to have your hand in that. Yeah, and, you know, I write for, uh, well, one of the publishers that I write for, I, I had the idea that they didn't even really read the whole book when they wrote the back cover copy. I was like, I think they only read the introduction because everything that they've written appears to in, in the introduction, but that's... Uh, sort of a red herring to the actual mystery of the story. And so, of course, I had to rewrite that, just right. as you so said. Just, and yeah. yeah, except the fact that when you're a writer, you really – Barbara Peters, woman who wrote under the name Barbara Peters, Barbara Mertz, once said that the way the writers had to do these things today, they had to be their own publicist. They had to do everything. She said they were going to move a printing press into her living room any day. <laughs> It's it's true, not just printing, but the you know, like you talk about the press releases, publicity, and so much of it has come back onto the writers these days. And you know, I'm a storyteller. I'm not really a marketing guru. I don't know that world very well. And so, 
So I stumble through it, but that's about the best I can do. Well, yes, it isn't most of our strength, although there are people who can be very good at it. Sure. But really, you're right. The story is the essence. That's what we live for, is to create the story. And even though I haven't been writing lately, I've had a wonderful time helping my students, writers, create their stories. Yeah, that's excellent. That's the next best thing to doing your own, is to see somebody coming in with what I have to say is... The the first drafts run the gamut from bad to really bad. And then can they be shaped up into something that really goes someplace? And the answer is yes, because the first draft is not necessarily bad. I mean, it's just this person is learning. This person doesn't know how to. The story in their head is so much better than the story on the page. So it's my job to help them really understand the story in their head and translate it to the page. Now, I don't know if I mentioned this, but you teach in San Diego and um, at the University of California there, and you teach novel writing. Do you work with students all the way through um, completing um, like a full manuscript, or what's, what's kind of the, 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 the bent of your classes? Well, in the later years, I began to teach only online. So I developed a three-part novel class, novel one, novel two, novel three. And it does focus on beginning, middle, and end. That doesn't mean anybody's going to write their novel in that number of weeks. It's three times nine, 27 weeks. But we focus on those aspects of the novel, of really what do you expect to do. This is where I come in with structure. You and I will talk structure. What do, you, what, what do you kind of have to do in the beginning? What kinds yeah. of things have to be in the middle? And, of course, that satisfying ending that everything else builds to. So I cover that, and I've had a couple of students who've continued on and as, a, as private students. So I've kind of been running novel four and five with them, nice. and I have an ongoing writer's group. So, yes, I've been able to have the experience of really – helping people get to the point of being publishable, whether they get some have been published, but some, you know, not, haven't necessarily found the, the right agent or the right publisher. But I know that they're sending out work that will be considered, that will not be thrown off into the slush pile in the corner and said, not good enough. Well, like I mentioned I earlier, I have... I have lots of books on writing on my shelf, and I found yours to be very practical and helpful, especially I read it, I think, as I was working on my first novel back in about 2005 or so, maybe 2004. And um, so I, I think it's very helpful, and I'm sure that your students benefit not just from your experience as a novelist, but also as a, as a writing instructor. Well, I hope so, and I have kind of expanded beyond, I mean, I love the mystery, but in teaching novel writing, I definitely get a range of people doing all sure. kinds of things, you know, I, science fiction to God help me chick lit, to, <laughs> you know, one person wrote this wonderful book, all of, it's a YA novel with fairies. Oh. You think, okay, how how deeply can we get into fairies? It was wonderful, but she ended up self-publishing. But and, and partly because she really wanted her own artistic, you know, be able to have drawings and things with the fairies there. Right. So she really wanted that complete control. But that was one where took a lot of work, and she really just everything I said, she just kept going back and you know, persistence, not giving up, really, really working to make this the best that could possibly be. 
Man, I think that's vital, you know, not just for aspiring or new authors, but for, for all of us, the persistence just to keep just to keep at it and not to, I mean, you'll always get discouraged at times, but to, to work through that. I mean, every novel that I write, I end up at certain times disheartened or discouraged, and you just have to keep at it. I once signed books with a person who had written a mystery, but she was also a poet. And she said that for her, writing poetry was like being in in love, and writing a novel was like getting married. Hmm. I said, if I was marrying this novel, we'd be in the divorce court right now. (laughs) I know just what you mean, that moment of, I hate this, why did I ever think of this, I will... the person I thought was the murderer can't possibly have done it. I have and I'm on page, you know, three hundred. Yeah. Yeah. These happen. Even with the outliner. I'm an outliner. And yeah. you can still have those moments of my God, there's a giant plot hole in here that I didn't see coming. Well, I know, uh, you know, uh, on the show, sometimes people are organic writers and sometimes outliners. I'm completely organic. I don't outline at all with my stories. And I'm I'm constantly, you know, surprised by the direction that things go. And I've had to do the same thing, like, oh, my goodness, this is not the killer. This cannot be the killer. And I've had to go back and, and change. But um but sometimes instinct tells us that, and sometimes just understanding the movement of a story kind of informs us as we move into it, and we say, you know what, um, for this to be believable, for this to have a twist, I need to, you know, change the direction where I anticipated things were going to go. Yes, yes. And you have to be open to that because yeah. that a lot. that's where the juice can be. Yeah, you know, if you if you lose the juice, I mean, there are times when a writer may have to look at a, at a project and say, you know, I'm done. Hmm. There's nothing left in here. It isn't working. It's never going to work. Let's move on. I mean, I don't like it to happen, but I think yeah. there are times when people have to face that rather than torture something into. I mean, this is the great advantage, of course, of your first novel is nobody's waiting for it. <laughs> your third That's or fourth true. novel may be on deadline and you are going to have to twist it into a pretzel and make it work now um, I like how you said twist it into a pretzel and uh, one of the uh, notes that I had was in your book How to Write Killer Fiction the, the s- subtitle says The Fun House of Mystery and the Roller Coaster of Suspense and I don't see a lot of people make the clear distinction that you do between mystery and suspense, but I feel like they are quite different as far as genres. I, I do, too. And I think that there are the areas of confusion can lead to, well, a muddy book. I mean, it's really it's, it's not just I mean, it's not abstract. It's about the experience that the reader has in reading and the experience that the reader is looking for. Is the reader looking for solving the puzzle or is the reader looking for that, oh, my God, what's going to happen now? Yeah. And there are there are ways to mix them a little bit, but one really tends to dominate the other. And I say to the writer, pick one, pick the one you read. Take yeah, the one that you enjoy reading the most. Yeah, if you're yeah. not sure, you know. I mean, I think that one, you know, mystery is much more intellectual and appeals to the curiosity. And 
you know, suspense is much more apprehension and concern and anxiety. And yeah. um, I feel like what you said is totally true. It's really hard. I, I don't even know how to do it where you create a scene that has both curiosity and concern to the same degree because if I'm curious, then I, I don't know where things are going. But if I'm concerned, very often it is because I do know where things are going and I don't want them to go there. Um, right. And so it's almost like you have this completely different orientation between the two and it affects, you know, the shape of the scene and the reader engagement with it. Well, it's not going to be in the same scene. That would yeah. be my suggestion is that you're, you're going to have, and this is a lot of contemporary mysteries uh, kind of do this, where you have all this curiosity, the whole Nancy Drew kind of thing, but let's be honest, looking for it, what, what happened and why it happened. And then in the last three chapters, we suddenly turn into a suspense novel. Yeah. As we go to confront the killer or the killer, you know, captures the detective, holds the detective at gunpoint and then explains how the crime happened. <laughs> yeah. You know, certain slight cliches here in, in, in the But the idea is you don't put the curiosity and the fear in the same thing. At one scene, our detective is curious and then something happens to frighten the detective. And now, yes, there's still curiosity, but it's no longer in the abstract. Right. It's more about, okay, who is doing this to me so I can stop them doing it? Now, so. um, w one of the things that I noticed in your book and that I, you brought up is the orientation of the reader to the detective is actually different in the different genres. And the, for instance, you say that in one, the, the, um, the detective is two steps ahead and the other two steps behind. Um, can you can you explain a little bit what that's referring to? Because I think it's a really great point that a lot of people don't don't really bring out or look at in this difference between where is the reader and where is the detective or the person trying to solve the crime. There are people who write this about this about the theory of mysteries. And one of them is a guy named George Dove, and I think I read his book on. The Mystery Reader and the Mystery, something like that. I mean, uh -huh. this is where I got this idea. This is not totally from, from my head. This is a guy who does scholarly tomes about mysteries. And the thing is, when you're reading a detective story, even some of us play the game more than others, but we all have this idea of wanting to come up with who who done it. I mean, that's why they're called whodunits, right? You want yeah. to follow along, and you want to follow the detective. But if I figure it out on page 30, and then I've got the whole book to go, I'm going to feel treated. Yeah. On the other hand, if I finish the book and then they tell me who did it, and I think I could never have figured that out in a million years because it's so off the wall, yeah, then I'm going to feel treated. What I'm really looking for is just about the same time the detective says, aha, I know who did it, I'm right there with them going, yes, yes, it was the nurse. Or I'm thinking, I almost know, let me think a little bit. And then when I find out it was the nurse, it was like, oh, I should have known that. You want to be close to the detective, but not so far ahead. If you're a little bit ahead right at the end, okay, then you're going to pat yourself on the back and, you know, call yourself a great mystery reader. But too far ahead, too far behind, you don't get the full mystery reading experience. Whereas in the suspense novel, I want to be right there with the character, 
But I also have to know a few things the character doesn't know. I've had more, more people trying to write suspense who would like to have, here's the character walking around in real life, and what she doesn't know is there's a man behind the tree looking at her. Right. Okay. If she doesn't know there's a man behind the tree, and if you're in first person so I can't see the man behind the tree, <laughs> then I've got no suspense. Yeah. My suspense is in knowing there's a man behind the tree. I either have the third person so I can say, oh, by the way, there's a man behind the tree, or I switch into the first person of the man behind the tree, looking at her, thinking of Mary Higgins Clark's classic, A Stranger is Watching. I mean, right there, the title tells you all, A Stranger is Watching. Yeah. And by, by by my knowing the stranger is watching, every single thing that heroine does is fraught. I'm thinking, oh, my God, the stranger is watching. What's he going to do to her? Yeah. Yeah, and I uh, I think that as as we develop our stories and as we write them, sometimes I found it helpful to think in terms of, okay, um, I'm going to – let the detective take some action that readers don't quite know. Like Sherlock Holmes, for instance, might walk over and look at the water in the glass and then peer mm-hmm. out the window and pick up the ruler and set it down and say, I've solved the case. Readers are saying, what? How? Because he's like two steps ahead you know, of the reader. But when it comes to suspense, I like to reverse that so that, so that the reader is actually the one worrying about person behind the tree because the character doesn't know that. So it, for me, it's, it's, interest, it's, a, it's a great way of understanding the difference of, of the dynamics of who is kind of one step ahead. Is it the character or is it the reader? And that engagement with the reader, I, I think, is really important. Yes, and ultimately it is about giving the reader an experience. That's why yeah. I use that funhouse and uh, roller coaster because really we're creating theme parks. Yeah, George I mean, R. R. Martin, what a theme park! I want to go to that theme park. I can't wait for the next book. <laughs> Somebody um, said he's not writing books; he's writing crack. <laughs> because when you give the reader the experience that is just totally engaging, whether it's suspense, mystery, science fiction, whatever, yeah. whenever you give that reader that experience, they want more. And so the technique the technique is not about the people get hung up on the rules. There are rules right. for this and rules for that. I'm not about that as much as I'm about the experience for the reader. And certainly the rules are part of that. Yes, if I have a completely at the end of my book, my mystery, my classic mystery, I discovered that the ghost did it. Yeah. I'm going to be very upset because ghosts don't do it in the classic mystery. <laughs> and not yeah. an arbitrary rule, but because that's not the experience the reader signed up for. Yeah, it's understanding the expectations of the reader when they come to this um, this story and then trying to meet those expectations. And, you know, sometimes I've told people that, you know, the packaging is part of the hook. Um, yeah. So in other words, you know, the title, the back cover copy, the stuff that we spoke about earlier, all of that is actually part of your story. So when I see that your book is entitled, I Suck Your Blood, and I look at the back and it says best <laughs> horror story of the year, and then I see the front and there's fangs and blood hanging down or something, I have a pretty good expectation of what type of you know story this is. And 
So you don't have to start off with showing a vampire in scene one. You can build because readers are like, okay, I know it's coming. Because that's actually part of the hook or part of the story is the packaging itself. Yes, that's a very good point. In in today's world, you can judge a book by its cover because the covers are made just to sell, exactly. Yeah. I mean, so yeah. to the book, I, I'm still old-fashioned enough to go to the bookstore, but if I'm looking at books online, yeah, the cover tells me I could find this interesting or not so much, not for me. I am a bookstore guy myself. I um, I certainly have some ebooks but um but there's nothing i enjoy more than finding a uh, used bookstore and just meandering through it and um locating you know books or authors that i've heard of that i've never read and um just discovering new new authors yes it really is exciting and i have somehow moved over into science fiction and fantasy reading lately and i've discovered several series that i'm just really can't wait for the next book, you know? Excellent, yeah. Just a wonderful feeling. Yeah, and when I read something where I feel like the story, the way it's told, the characters for everything just sings. It's just as perfect as it could be. You could not picture one thing that should be different. I mean, that is such an exhilarating thing. It's like looking at a great piece of art or something. You just really, I can appreciate the the. Some people think that if you get too much into analyzing writing and analyzing story, that you lose the pleasure. Yeah. I think not necessarily. When I, cause, you know, obviously I can lose pleasure in less well-written things, but when I find somebody that is really just hitting on all cylinders, it, it's exciting. Yeah, I remember reading The Hunger Games, and when I read it, I thought, there's not a word in here that I would change or write differently. and. Mm-hmm. You know, when you find those stories, um, it's just, it's exciting. And I think, you know, when that book became so successful and then there was a series of movies and everything, I thought, well, good for her. I mean, she wrote this really compelling story. She obviously spent time crafting and shaping it well. And and so I always like to see that when someone who really tells a, you know, a gripping story in a powerful way finds success for it. Yes. Yes, and we really have a lot of amazing writers. I mean, in mystery, this has really been the second golden age. The first golden age was considered the 20s and 30s with, Hmm. you know, Christie and Sayers and Chandler and Hammond and all those people. And really the age that we're living in is the second golden age. The mystery is just, it's got literary quality. It's got excitement. It's got really great writers living in our time now. When do you get to live in a golden age? Some people have called this also the golden age of television because there's so many, you know, interesting and well-done TV series that have started to come out over the last decade. And so I think think it's interesting how people will often watch television shows um, in the genres that you and I have written in, mystery and suspense and so on, and but then sometimes they'll label it. They'll say, "Oh, that's just genre fiction or something." Yeah. If they yeah. if it's suspense, but those are the shows that they watch every night on television. Right. <laughs> it's the genre fiction shows. I'm like, why are you disparaging the writing of this novel, right? When you watch the TV show based on it every night. Yeah. Well, and of course, there are those of us in the genre who hate the term transcends the genre. Right. 
which you get from some reviews. I mean, anything that looks halfway literary is called transcending the genre. And, you know, well, yeah, I mean, there, it's like anything else. You you can have pulp throwaway books, yeah. or you can have quality books. Whether it's and that would include Rome. You could say the same about romance. You could say that every romance book is some kind of trash. What about Jane Eyre? What about Jane Austen? You know, those are romance novels, but they are hardly the quickie throwaway trash romance novels. Every genre has its higher and somewhat lower levels of writing. Yeah, I mean, we just have to decide as writers and storytellers, you know, what what are we seeking to do and what types of stories are we are we trying to tell? And, you know, for me, it's just... I want to tell the best possible story that I can. And so I write slower than a lot of my uh, friends write. They'll pump out several books a year sometimes. And I say, how do you do that? This is like, I can't even imagine. And they're like, well, you have to stay up to speed on the trends and, and stuff. And mm-hmm. But it yeah. just takes me time because I go through so many drafts of different scenes to try and really make it the very best I can. And, you know, so I feel like, you know, obviously, it's vital and, and important to me, and one of the reasons we do this show is is that I want I want to share those insights that you know successful authors and de- de- filmmakers have have come across as far as how do you tell a great story and what are some of those secrets to doing so. Yes, yes, because there are people who can do this really instinctively who understand story somehow at some deep level but for many of us picking up a little, at least a little of the theory is helpful i i got to fall in love with a theory you don't have to do that in order to write novels but to get some idea of why certain aspects of story always seem to work why certain things grip us so much you know, why is it you're always ready to read this story one more time? And really you are. I just wanted the science figure fantasy series I just picked up, a trilogy where this young girl is raised in a cottage, you know, in the country, and suddenly she becomes the princess. And you're hmm. thinking, how many times have we read the hidden prince or princess coming in to take over the kingdom? Right. I'm. This is a whole new take on it. It's a it's a fascinating book. I'm there again because yeah. there's something gripping that in the in the human story about you're hidden and now you're going to be in the public world and taking on things that you haven't really been trained to do. A princess raised in the in the castle becoming the queen. Okay, fine. A princess raised in the country doesn't know anything about the castle becoming the queen. That's a story. Yeah. There's inherent tension in there, and I believe that tension lies at the heart of all great stories, that characters have something uh, that they want that they can't get, they have unmet desire, and that leads them forward to make the choices that end up unfolding as the story as the story grows. And any time that we can uncover those moments of tension, I think it gives us the seeds to tell great stories. I see... Yes, and I some people call that tension conflict, but that does make it sound like every story is about a war, which it isn't. So I think tension right. is a better word. Tension is, is a word. But I like to see the tension on three levels. In fact, let's take this, this princess. 
um, the first level for her is I'm going from this country to it's 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 person against world. So she's going to this castle where, in fact, nobody actually wants her to come and be the queen. They're perfectly right. happy the way things are. So she's going to be fighting the outside world to take her place as the queen. And then usually we have the internal tension and the internal, the internal conflict. In her case, it's going to be, can I do this? Can I be this queen that they need yeah. me to be? Now, the third level that I think is is sometimes ignored is the interpersonal conflict, because this is where, okay, her uncle is the regent, and she's going to have to fight with him. He represents the world, but he's also a person. So each interpersonal conflict, each person she comes in conflict with or becomes an ally or an enemy, whatever, they become important because they relate to either the world against her or herself against her. And yeah, I, I completely I, agree. So the, yeah. This is where the interpersonal conflicts or tensions can be tweaked in such a way that they really matter. It's not just I'm having an argument with the guard about something. The argument with the guard is reflective of conflict with the world, conflict with the self. This may be way too abstract for it. No, no, it's not at all. I think that, you know, there's a dichotomy that people bring up very often. They'll say, is this a plot-driven or a character-driven story? And personally, I believe every story is tension-driven. And I don't like the plot-driven versus character-driven thing because it leaves out what you just mentioned, and that is the interpersonal tension of a story. And there are lots of great stories that are based on interpersonal relationships and tension that aren't really so much plot driven or character driven as they are centered around interpersonal tension. And so I think when people ask that, they leave out that whole realm that you just mentioned, interpersonal relationships. Well, and often too, the secondary characters in the interpersonal relationships can just become window dressing when in fact they need to be useful. Yeah. Everybody needs a job in your story. And I mean a fiction job. You know, they're either an ally or a warner or an enemy or somebody that, that makes the person question themselves. I mean, they have a job to do, maybe not on, on every page, but there's a moment in which they look and say, hey, you're becoming the very thing that you said you hated. Hmm. Yeah, you know, or something like that. And it, but reflecting back into that internal tension, can I do this? Can I be the hero? Am I am I the hero type? You know, no, Frodo yeah. with the ring is never you know never never confident that he should be the person carrying the ring, but he is the person carrying the ring, so he must carry the ring. So he has the in, inter, internal conflict about whether he's good enough. And, of course, the external conflict is, you know, Sauron and Mordor. And now we have the interpersonal conflict with Boromir, who wants the ring. Exactly. I like it. Yeah. I've taught um, I've taught different courses over the years at many, many conferences. And I think helping people see those different realms of struggles is 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 vital to really telling deep and multidimensional stories. 
Um, one of the things that you mentioned earlier was in your coursework, you have like novel writing one, two, and three, and different aspects of story that need to appear or occur at different points in the novel. I was wondering if you could talk us through that a little bit, this idea um, that there are certain things at the beginning that readers are expecting or looking forward to at the middle and, and toward the end. Well, obviously, in the beginning, there's a certain amount of just introducing and world building. You know, we think of world building as being science fiction and fantasy. But really, if you're writing about Chicago, you're building your own Chicago. I mean, you may be using the names of the streets, but somehow the take you're going to give on Chicago is going to be your personal one. Right. So there's world building. There's what is the, what is the world I'm, I'm presenting here? Who are these people? And what is the beginning conflict or tension? What is it they want right now? And, of course, what they want right now may get way complicated. So you start there with and then bringing up to a certain, the, what I call the first plot point, what many people call the first plot point, is that first real crunch point. I want this, and now I've run into a big wall, and I have to make a a turn and do something different. This takes us into the big middle. And in my view, this is why I use arcs instead of acts, is there are four arcs. So arc one, arc two, arc three, arc four. And arcs two and three are the middle. The reason you have two of them is that you need a midpoint. You need something that happens in the center of the story that gives you a big twist. It's really, it's about twists, unexpected things. Something new came up, I need to change my plan. Right. So the plan changes, the plan changes, or the danger increases, or a new danger comes. But you don't want that a steady, it's not necessarily a steady thing. I've only got one enemy. Well, even with Soren, okay, we could talk Lord of the Rings here. You've always got only one enemy, but it's very different at the moment when Frodo and Sam go into Mordor. Now we're taking a proactive, we always knew we were going to go there, but now they're really, they're stepping into enemy territory. And then you get the next big one for them is Frodo captured by the the spider. So in each of these moments, there are setbacks and obstacles. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. Setbacks and obstacles that make it look like maybe the entire enterprise is going to be doomed. Yeah. Because the ending, when you think about the ending, whatever the ending is, whether I've solved the crime, whether I've got my lover, whether, you know, I've understood something in my past that I didn't think I would ever understand, whatever the ending is, it's got to be fully satisfying, and the hero must earn the ending. Oh, I like that. I mean, it's the dete- I, yeah. really, what I hate, and there are detective stories like this. You know them, you've read them, and I'm afraid I don't call them really detective stories, but there are those where our detective is fooling around through the whole book, and then finally at the end, either by some strange accident or the killer basically walks up and says, yes, I did it, you've got me. Right. Out of the blue for not, you know, do you feel treated? I feel treated. I want my detective to detect. I want my suspense hero or heroine to go through the worst that can possibly happen and come out alive. If I cheat the reader with 
the middle, I don't have a satisfying ending. And when it comes to the ending, um, I think one of the things that you noted in your book was that you don't want to introduce new characters toward the end and have you know someone else solve the the problem. And I I, I agree with that. Yeah, um, you know, good classic things about yes, it was the long lost cousin from Australia who just happened to be in the house pretending to be the butler. Okay. That's you. You can have that ending if you have given me six, well, all right, four clues somewhere along the line that yeah. maybe that could be the case. If he just comes out of the blue, no. But if I have planted it, planted the clues, that will work. Do you but, have any? Do you have any secrets for clue planting? I mean, that uh-huh. seems to be a place where a lot of writers fumble the ball. The key is, and it is hard because you have it has to be there, and then it, it's like a, like a magic trick. It needs to be there, but it needs to be obscured. So yes, I think one you know, and other people have talked about this. You know, who has a really good list on this is Judy Grieber, who writes as Shillian Roberts. Anyway, if you have a list, you have a whole bunch of stuff that was found in the um, the victim's purse. And one of these things is going to be a vital clue. You have a whole, make the whole list of the stuff and put the vital clue right in the middle. Hmm. So that I'm looking at lipstick and the, you know, this and this and the cell phone and the cell phone. And then somewhere in the middle is this thing that's really a big clue. But I'm going to miss it because I'm just reading the list. Another one is the unreliable witness. Agatha Christie was very good on this. Where, you know, this, this, this silly maid is always, you know, saying things that nobody believes. And then finally she says something that in fact really is true. But we discount it because she's been so silly and we don't, we don't trust her. Huh. You know, that's a, so, and so another one is to put the clue, put the clue before it actually has any meaning. If you know what I'm saying, if I, if there's, they mention a place and we have no idea what that means. And then way later, this place is mentioned again, and it turns out to be significant. And we've actually kind of forgotten that it was earlier mentioned. Right. Yeah, yeah. In another context. And so, like, you know, if we're really thinking, we'll say, wait a minute, they mentioned, you know, this place before. Go back and see what that was. But many of us won't get it. But then at the end, it'll be like, oh, yeah, they did tell us the brother-in-law owned that property or property of that place or whatever. And isn't it so important not to cheat, not to have the detective suddenly know information that was never revealed to the reader, and the reader's like, I, I never even knew that. And if, I think, if, yeah. people are, if people are really playing the game, and I will admit that there are there are people who read mysteries, especially what on the cozier end of the scale, I will have to say, who aren't that concerned with the puzzle. They just want to read about. This world, this world of whatever has been created, the world of quilting mysteries or cooking mysteries, and they don't really get that deeply into the mystery. But for those of us that are in the old school, yes, we want the play fair mystery. We want the writer to be playing fair with us, even if we don't really spend a lot of time trying to figure out who the killer was. We want to know that we could have and that it isn't just a complete cheat or that the writer has held something, withheld something from us that should have been 
put out there. I mean, I have had that in a couple of books and sometimes by people that have been very well paid for those books <laughs> where all of a sudden something is revealed and that's supposed to be a big plot point turning. But the fact is the character already knew it. It's only being revealed to me, the reader. The character yeah. was already up on that and just was keeping it from me. No, no, that doesn't, yeah. doesn't satisfy yeah, no, I agree. I um, I don't. I, I think it is a, is a form of cheating, and it's. I think you mentioned it's a game that we play, and there are certain. I don't know. I mean, I'm all for one for breaking the rules, but when it comes to reader engagement, I don't think we should ever let them down. I think that's one of the biggest keys. Um, I think you mentioned earlier that we have different views about structure, and I thought that was fun. So I was really intrigued by what you said. People who've listened before know that I've written a book called Story Trump's Structure, and um, and so uh, you know I'm I believe that a story is pursuit, um, and that story isn't structure, but it's pursuit, and that pursuit can happen in different ways and different modes and different numbers of acts and arcs and, and so on like that. And, and so I'm always intrigued to hear people who have more of a structural view of things to understand, you know, where they're coming from. Well, I don't, I, I do agree that a really rigid, it must be this way. We, we're not screenwriters where they really do literally look at each, you know, this must happen on page 20. And if it doesn't, then you don't have a screenplay. Yeah. We're not that rigid with it. And there are definitely stories that are told in different forms, um, like things that are being told out of order, for example. I mean, yeah. if, if it isn't chronological, but I say that you can find the, I think the structure is natural and that you can find it in even the stories that seem like they're unstructured. There's going to be moments, the turning points. I mean, I'll be reading something like this and I'll see something happening and I'll look up at the page number and that page number is pretty much where I expected it to be hmm. in terms of something happening, some turning point, some not, some revelation happening. And I, I can take Jane um, Austen apart and, and show you the four arcs in Jane Austen. And God knows she never had a screenwriting class. <laughs> so I think there's some there's a natural part of structure. Now, where when you do it is up to you. If you are the what I call the blank pager, some people call seat of the pants. You said organic. That's yeah. a nice term. If that's who you are, then first of all, you may have actually brought this structure into your unconscious thinking so that it's just already there. Because we are all conditioned by movies and TV and our previous reading. So it could just be there sub in your subconscious already. And you may also get your story down, get your draft down, and then in the second draft, you find yourself sharpening up the plot points. I just say sometimes, somewhere, structure has to be in there or you're going to have a gooey mess. <laughs> it's, um, I, you know, it is interesting because I don't think in terms of acts, but I do think in terms of movement and that I always think that a story starts with an orientation, which you called world building. So 
I, th- I don't think we're completely on different pages, but but then the crisis or calling uh, event usually occurs, and there's escalation. And in the escalation, you can have one act, two acts, five, ten. I mean, how many acts are in, you know, the Game of Thrones television series? I mean, there must be dozens by now of acts. And then there's um, there's usually moments of darkness before the climactic encounters and what you might call the third or the maybe the fourth fourth act but it's so interesting sometimes i'll have people who have different views about acts and and structure you know look at the same movie and say okay well there's that was three acts or someone else will say well that's five acts (laughs) if it's three or five or four i mean i really personally i don't care i just am interested in you know being immersed into that story and um, you know, we have two-act plays. We have most sitcoms are two acts. It's um, problem and then solution, and there are one-act, you know, short stories. And so it just, um, it just for me is is isn't as helpful of a paradigm. But but I do appreciate that, you know, that it helps a lot of people to think through the movement of a story. Well, that's my thinking when it comes to helping my students. If it serves you. Please use it. If it doesn't serve you, find something else that does. I mean, yeah. I, I don't mean to be rigid with it. I just think that I find it helpful, and I think it has helped. It, it, other people have found it helpful, even if they are blank pagers to start with. Yeah. And when it comes to where the acts are in anything on television, there's only one way to really know. When's the commercial? <laughs> That's yeah, what the go. acts are in television. Seriously, watch. Yeah. Especially in a drama. There's going to be this moment of something, you know, that there's going to, because they want you coming back. They want your eyeballs back on the screen when the thing returns. Yeah, some sort of cliffhanger. So those are, yeah, that's where the acts um, are. Oh, and sorry. you too as a reader. Let me just finish that thought because yeah, even though yeah. the, even though our books, thank God, do not have commercials in them yet. <laughs> yet. Uh-huh. I mean, really, yet. We do have this idea of I'm gonna I'm reading a book, whether it's on my nook or it's in a regular book, and I need to I can't just sit really read the book in one sitting most of the time. I'm gonna put it down and go about my business and pick it up another day, pick it up, you know, later. And here I so we have chapters, and I end the book at a certain chapter. And your goal as a writer is to try to keep that reader from happily putting the book down. Exactly, the reader has to put the book down, but you want the reader to say, "Oh God, I wish I could get the next chapter, but but I have to go do the dishes. I have to go to the doctor." So one of the best, yeah, one of the best yeah. compliments someone ever gave me was she said, I had to take you into the bathroom with me. And so as a writer, you're like, oh, thank you. I'm very happy to hear that. Absolutely. And really, people who don't read to the bathroom, there's something wrong with them. <laughs> <laughs> I usually have old copies of Yoga Journal in there, not so much by actual reading matter, because it's usually a short trip. <laughs> I'm a yoga teacher in addition to other stuff. Oh, wow. 
Now, um, one of the things that you brought up in your book and uh, that I thought was really helpful and, and something that I really haven't heard other people talk about, most people talk about conflicts and how you need conflicts and, and so on like that. But you bring up the point that there are four different ways to end a scene. Yes, no, yes, but, and no, and furthermore. And I'd never heard anyone kind of unpack a scene like that before. And the only two that really move the story forward are no and furthermore and yes, but. Can, yeah. can you tell yeah, us a little I bit will. about, yeah, I will. about I that? It comes from Doug Swain of the University of Oklahoma and Jack Bickham, who is probably better known today, has written books on writing the scene. So there is more of this stuff out there. I think, well, anyway, have a look at it. But yeah. Because if you just say yes, okay, great. Life is good. But then it wasn't really much of a scene. It hasn't changed anything. I think you talk about tension. I think change is another way to say yeah. what is the engine of story is change and Often that blockage is the change. Um, I'll take my princess who is leaving this cabin and going to the castle. If she goes to the castle and becomes the queen and everybody says, yay, hooray for the queen, we have got a really boring story. <laughs> yeah. If she goes to the castle and they basically say, go home, we're not leaving, letting you into the castle, and she turns around and goes home, we got no story. It's going to be, no, you can't be the queen, and furthermore, we're going to lock you in, in, in the dungeon. Or, yes, you can be the queen, and your life is going to be a living hell because your kingdom is falling apart. There you the go. Big yes, yeah. but, which is what we really have. The whole trilogy is based on the big yes, but of that one. So you're either getting what you want with a twist, or you're not getting what you want with an extra kick in the butt. <laughs> there you go. I like so you, that. You're, so you're, you're kind of, it's like you got punished for even asking. Because it makes a change. Now the protagonist must act in some different way. If I didn't get what I want, then okay, I'm going to be fired up to get it, and I have one more obstacle to overcome. If, she, if she's locked in the dungeon, she has to get out of the dungeon and then win her kingdom. And again, it'll and happen yes. where, yeah. Yeah, and then if it's a yes, but, yes, okay, we'll let you be the queen, and now you've got to deal with, you know, this falling up. But there's plenty of other crises. We're at war with the other kingdom, blah, blah. Yeah. I think that's really helpful, um, just that simple understanding of the four ways that a scene can end, uh, especially for people who've been taught that when a character goes into a scene, they don't get what they want. And... That might be true, but then you have the end of the story. Okay, you can't be the queen. Yeah. Okay, well, yeah. then the story's yeah, over. Exactly. Right, and, and the yes with the hidden but is also quite useful. Um, you've got somebody's on the run for whatever reason. She's suspected of murder. And so she goes to her old friend, and her old friend takes her in, and, oh, my goodness, poor darling, and go take a shower while I cook dinner. And while she's, you know, getting out of the shower and getting dressed, she overhears the old friend picking up the phone and calling the FBI. Yeah. Yes. You got the respite from your good friend. Yes. But there's a hidden but. 
but he turned you in. And sometimes you hold off on that but. It isn't known till later. But the yes with the hidden but is also useful. I like it. Yeah. So if we have... The thing, lived- I to, the thing I want to get away from is the scene that isn't really a scene. Yeah. And you must, if you deal with, with students at all, you, you've seen this one before, where essentially it's, as, as, as my writer's group used to say, it's two characters sitting around committing exposition on each other. Committing exposition on each other. Yeah, or it's just kind of a, you know, a day in the life. How many of my students want to start their stories with a day in the life? <laughs> well, unless you have the day of the life of a very interesting person. Try to start it when that day is completely destroyed. Yeah. You know, then you got something, but your basic day in the life, boring. Yes, um, I've had some guests on, and one explained it as bog sat. I don't know if you've ever heard of that term bog sat, but it stands for a bunch of guys sitting around talking. And uh, so I tell people, get the bog set out of every scene that you have. Oh, I like that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and, of course, yeah. in the, I, I, I tend to get more a bunch of girls sitting around talking. But well, there you yeah, go. Yeah. Thing. And to some degree, I mean, in women's fiction, a certain amount of women sitting around talking is going to be okay. But you've got to, there's got to be something underlying it that moves the story. Yeah. Yeah, sometimes it'll be the subtext there, and there'll be yeah. tension and jealousies or people right, trying exactly. to punish I mean, another and so on. To go back to Jane Austen, I mean, you can have tea with the vicar and be on the edge of your seat over who's going to say what at the tea with the vicar if you're writing it right. Now, uh, before we close up, I was wondering if you have any more uh, words of advice or nuggets for aspiring writers, maybe some issues that you see in your courses that keep coming up again and again or something helpful that might be good for anyone out there who's saying, you know what, I want to write and I'm going to check out this book on writing that that you wrote, um, but what more can I take away from from you know this moment, this listening here and the show? God, there's so many things that everybody says which are which are actually just right. <laughs> A, read. B, read in your genre. C, don't neglect watching television. I, people come in with insufficient television watching. They have not watched enough television. Because that is how we communicate today. That's how we tell stories today. And yeah. your book is going to be informed by the fact that people are watching. Television and movies are a competition. We've got to be as good as they are. Absolutely. And, you know, and even better in some ways because we're giving the reader a chance to use their imagination and not just watch the pictures that have been put on the screen. But, yeah, immerse yourself in, in story. Everybody's different ways of telling stories. That's what I would say. That's great. Well, this has been a really good conversation, and for years I've wondered um, – you know what it would be like to actually chat with you after reading your book, How to Write Killer Fiction, and uh, and I wasn't disappointed. I've really enjoyed your thoughts and takeaways. Um, Thank and, you. Uh, it was fun for me too. Excellent. Now, is there a place online where people can check out your books, or uh, you'd like to direct them to? Maybe your website, or if you have a social media presence. 
I do not have a social media presence. I just have the website, and I keep thinking I want to add a few things about writing in it, but haven't just gotten around to it. And is it carolynwheat.com? Yes. Okay, great. And um, I want people to run out and buy this um, How to Write Killer Fiction book. If they're looking for a practical guide, especially for writing mystery and suspense, um, to find out more about my other books, you can click to stephenjames.net. We have an upcoming conference on writing in Atlanta in October called the thecharacterconference.com. You can go there and check that out just at characterconference.com. For more info about our other guests and to check out our other broadcasts, click to thestoryblender.com. And folks, always remember, the art of the story is all in the blend. We'll see you next time.